Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Uh, We are continuing on in our captivity series, looking at stories in scripture of people who are in captivity, particularly the Babylonian captivity when the people of God were carried over uh, to Babylon and uh, held captive there, and seeing if those stories have any relevance for us in our lives today. Now, I want you to know this, and this this is an honest confession. I have a weird relationship with being weird. Now, I don't know if that sentence makes any sense to you, uh, but basically, uh, I'm okay with being weird, but only in certain circumstances. Like, it's alright if I'm the one who's causing my own weirdness, that's okay. If I'm fully aware of my own weirdness, that's alright too. Uh, But if I'm not aware of it, or I'm surprised by it, that is a bad situation. Like, I have nightmares still about this one wedding that I went to, uh, where I showed up, I had no jacket on because it's a wedding in Georgia in the summer. I mean, who wants to do that? And I was wearing just a button-down shirt. I think I had a tie on. And I show up, and I walk in the door. We were there a little bit early, so we sit down, and I'm like, okay, some of these older guys have jackets on. Then I start looking around and realizing everyone in the room has jackets on, and I am sitting there. You can actually just still see it in their wedding photos, I'm sure. Uh, You look at the back of the crowd, and it's a hundred black suits and one pink shirt just glowing there in, like, the sixth row. It was, like, mortifying to me. I don't know why I took it so hard, but I just hate standing out like that. But... If it's for being weird by being the guy who doesn't mind wearing a pink shirt or being the guy who preaches in a shirt with alien spaceships on it, I'm totally okay with that. I don't really mind being peculiar in that way. And actually, uh, this week I was doing some reading and I found out about these people called, uh, it was like a Christian sect in England, uh, called the Peculiar People. Peculiar people. That's kind of like a a weird thing to say. Uh, They were an off-branch of like a a Wesleyan uh, tradition. And uh, they chose this name. They actually called themselves that uh, off of a King James translation of uh, Deuteronomy and then again in 1 Peter. The Deuteronomy passage 14.2 says this, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. First Peter actually uh, echoes this. Peter writing uh, his letter actually echoes this exact same idea as he's writing uh, to people in the New Testament. He says this in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But ye, changes out the thou for a ye there, which is an interesting King James translation thing, but I'm not going to get into that. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show... Shew? I don't really know how to say that. S-H-E-W? That's weird. Shew forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now that's really interesting, right? I mean, here in both the Old and the New Testament, we're seeing God saying to his people, Hey, You are peculiar. You are different. I have called you out. In the context of the Deuteronomy passage, uh, Moses is giving them the law. And so he's saying to them, hey, this is how you will live. And because of that, you will be different from the rest of these people who are around you. And then in 1 Peter, Peter is actually admonishing his people. He's saying, hey, you're living among the Gentiles, but you are still called out. 
In fact, Peter actually calls them, he says, living as exiles and sojourners among the Gentiles. Now, uh, here in the Babylonian captivity, that makes sense to call somebody an exile. That's who they were. Uh, but for those people living in the New Testament, that doesn't really make any sense, right? Like, uh, they're not captives, they're not exiles, they're not held out. But instead, Peter is saying, you, though you're living among other people, are actually called to live differently than they live. And that's exactly what we see in our story today. And so uh, this is sort of Daniel's take on the whole Babylonian captivity. He was taken over there. Uh, the passage says as a young man, that means he might have been, uh, or that, I guess that term actually could translate as anything from like child to young man. Uh, I think they translate it as youth in the uh, ESV. That term could mean a lot of different things, uh, but other archaeological evidence about the way in which Babylon would train people leads us to believe that he was probably about 14 or 15 years old at the time of this story. And so he's abducted, sort of like a spoil of war, like, hey, let's get the fancy people. Let's uh, take their kids because they're going to be smarter, well-educated, well-trained, healthy, something like that. Uh, let's take them and use their minds as a resource for Babylon. And so uh, he gets abducted, taken away from his family, and put in service of the king, which is already going to put you on your back foot, right? So it's not bad enough that just like the rest of Israel, he's been uh, conquered in war and then packed up off to Babylon so that they can't, you know, get back on their feet again. But on top of that, he gets singled out along with a few other people uh, to go and serve the king. Uh, this would be a pretty disorienting type of captivity, I feel like, and really one that uh, I think would make me uh, sort of default to fear. I just want to fall in line. I just want to do what they're telling me. Uh, but that is not the route that Daniel takes. So uh, basically, they offer him the king's food. They're saying, like, well, if you're going to serve the king, we're going to treat you right. We're going to give you the best food. And uh, Daniel says no. In fact, the text says that he says no because he doesn't want to defile himself. He says, I know you're offering me this really good food, but I'm not going to eat that because I don't want to defile myself. Now, we don't really know why. We don't have any other context as to why uh, he doesn't want to eat this food or why this particular food is bad. Um, it could have been that it was food that was sacrificed to idols, and because of uh, religious law laid out in books like Deuteronomy, uh, he's not allowed to eat food that was sacrificed to other gods. Or it could be horse flesh. We're really not sure. Uh, also, horse flesh is just a dis disgusting word to even say. But maybe these Babylonians were having horse barbecue and uh, Daniel just decided, hey, you know what? I'm not going to eat that. doesn't really matter. All that matters is Daniel knew that because of his religious convictions, because of what he believed about God, because of the God that he served, he was not going to allow himself to eat that food. He was going to say uh, that that food would defile him. And really, uh, you think of defile as sort of like made dirty, but really, uh, in, a, in this context, it means something more like further separate him from God, right? So God is perfect. God is holy. Uh, God is all good. We as human beings are sinners. Uh, we are broken. Uh, we choose evil on a regular basis. And Daniel is here saying, I don't want to do anything else that's going to put me further distance from God. And so there must be something that he is working off of here, uh, some religious conviction that he is holding to say, no, I am not going to eat that food. So he asks, and I love this because he was like disagreeing in a very agreeable way. He asks if he can have some other food. 
Now, it's unclear with this term whether it was food that was grown from seeds, so basically vegetables, or if it was actually the seeds themselves that were sown into the ground. It's kind of tricky to understand the translation there. But basically, these guys are over here like, okay, king, thank you so much for offering us your best food. It's the same food that you eat. That's a huge deal. We're eating better than anyone else. But actually, if you could just give us a pack of sunflower seeds, I think we'll be all right. And... They did, and uh, you know what happened? They uh, actually became stronger and healthier, and they looked more favorable than the other people who had been eating the king's food. I don't know what was going on. Their ketones must have been up or something like that. I mean, they were on, like, the hottest fad diet of all time. And they come out of this thing uh, looking better than the other guys who had eaten all the king's food. And I think what we learn here is not that we should just all start eating whatever it was that Daniel was eating, uh, though I'm sure it was very healthy. What I think we learn here is very simply, God gave them this look. He gave them the learning and the skill. And even to David, he gave the interpretation of dreams because of their faithfulness. Not because of the diet itself, not because of anything that they were eating or not eating, but actually because they were choosing to follow God over following what everyone else was doing, over following what they assumed was required of them. What's really interesting about this, I think, particularly for us during this time, is that this is a story, and actually the subsequent stories in Daniel, at least for the uh, beginning part of it, or the beginning, you know, third, if you sort of break it down that way, the stories are all about people who followed God and did what he said as opposed to what their ruling authorities, as opposed to what their captors, as opposed to what their, um, their friends and their society and the people around them and their peers were doing. They chose to follow God over that, and because of that, God provided for them. God took care of them. We see this in this story right here, and then it goes right over next to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They were thrown into a fire and did not burn. And then we go into Daniel and the lion's den. They were thrown into a lion, or Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. The lions do not eat him. Uh, just astounding stories of what can happen when you choose to follow God over what everyone else is doing. And what I've noticed is that our own quarantine, our own captivity, makes you think about what's important. Or at least it has for me. You know, you spend a lot more time alone. You spend a lot more time just with yourself. And really, uh, for me, I've been thinking a lot about, like, church and uh, what we do, what we have been doing, the church that I've grown up in for the past 30 years. And it makes me ask certain questions, like what's important, what's not important, what's necessary, what's required uh, for us to be a church, and uh, what is sort of extra things that we are clinging on to. And I hope you've had time to think, too. Because really, it seems to me that there's two options, and they're not just options that you choose either A or B at the beginning of quarantine and you're set for the rest. They're options you choose every single day, every single hour. You can choose to distract yourself, maybe bury yourself in work, uh, maybe binge watch Netflix, whatever that is. Or you can choose to actually sort of spend some time alone with God in your thoughts. And if you do that, I hope that you'll come upon the uncomfortable blessing of asking questions like, am I living right? Like, am I living the life that I want to be living? Am I uh, following Jesus in the way that I want to be following him? Am I doing this one precious life that I have? Am I doing it right? Am I actually, like, living the life that I want to lead?
And I think if this text shows us anything, it's that uh, if we truly are followers of Jesus, if we truly are ones who follow the one true and only God, then a lot of times that is going to be a call to us to live peculiarly. A call to us to be a peculiar and different people who are not like everyone else. I think even in this time, that should tell us, uh, if anything, that our captivity should probably look a little different from the ones who are living around us. Like, we shouldn't be engaged in the same things as your neighbors who don't believe in Jesus. We shouldn't be over-drinking or binge-watching things just to try and survive this whole thing. There should be something different about us. And just so you don't think that I'm, you know, Mr. Like Rain on Your Parade or something like that, I want to just start, or I guess not start, we're about halfway through this thing, but I just want to, like, make a special note to say that I have already seen this as a part of this quarantine, and I didn't even like recognize that it was a thing. I was actually talking to Hannah uh, pretty early on and uh, we were uh, we had like brought some food over to her house and we we're sort of you know talking 10 feet apart with our masks on that kind of thing. And we're talking about how strange it is uh, that no one in our little church community that we know of at least had really like freaked out over this. And in fact, I could actually tell a distinct difference in talking to someone like Hannah versus talking to, uh, she's going to be mortified that I threw her into all of this. I'm sorry, Hannah, I apologize. Uh, I'm accidentally using you as a sermon illustration. But uh, it was astounding the way in which uh, people like her, people a part of our church, people who are following after God, did not sort of like lose their minds in the beginning of this thing. And I'm not trying to shame anyone who did do that. Uh, I'm sure we've all definitely had our moments and our times uh, of chaos and struggle and, and, and just uh, fear over the unknown, lack of control, all of those things. But what I noticed early on was an odd sort of calm among so many of you. And as I'm processing with Hannah, uh, I realize that it's actually, I think, because our sense of control our sense of peace, our sense of value and self-worth was not wrapped up in all of these things that we supposedly lost during this quarantine, right? Like, uh, we, as followers of Jesus, never found our hope or our justification or our life in, you know, a job or in an ability to do this or that. It wasn't all wrapped up in whether we could go down and go to our favorite restaurant. It wasn't wrapped up in whether we could go to a concert or something like that. But it was in something deeper. And so because of that, it, it caused us to be peculiar in the way in which we reacted even to this coronavirus pandemic. And I think there's probably more ways in which we have continued and probably should continue to do this. There should be a distinction between you and the way that you're living right now and someone who is not following Jesus. And at least for me, I can't speak for everybody, I'm kind of tired of working so hard to try and fit in. I'm kind of tired of something that I have done myself, right? Like, uh, I, I brought this on myself. I have no one else to blame other than me. Uh, but I, I convinced myself of this idea of saying, like, hey, Christianity's weird. Uh, this whole Jesus thing is kind of strange. Because of that, I need to work as hard as I possibly can to look like everyone else, to talk like everyone else, to act like everyone else, to watch what they're watching, uh, to listen to what they're listening to, and all of these things. Almost to the point where it becomes like I'm working harder to look more 
more and more like a non-Christian, and that is the exact backwards way of going about this whole thing. And I'm admitting and even confessing and repenting to you of that, church. I am sorry for that. Church, I am tired of the status quo. I am tired of trying to work so hard just to look like everyone else. When you and I are called to be a peculiar people, when we are called to be different for the sake of the Lord. So uh, here's what I am asking you to do, and it is something that I am going to uh, do myself or really have been doing myself as I've been uh, preparing this sermon. I'm just going to leave you with three diagnostic questions. Three questions to ask yourself to really recognize whether or not you are living as a peculiar person, whether or not you are truly separated from the rest of society as a royal priesthood, as a chosen people of God. So here's number one. What has been costly? As you think about your life, as you think about the way in which you're living, uh, what has been costly to you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who was imprisoned, actually, who was in captivity uh, for standing up against the uh, Nazi Germany, he said this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. How much of the grace that we apply to ourselves, how much of the freedom that we just sort of give ourselves whenever we mess up is cheap grace like that? How much is even the way that you're looking at yourself and thinking about yourself or you're treating yourself with that cheap grace? Then he goes on to say, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all he has. These are uh, Jesus' parable allusions right here. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and will follow him. Now look, I'm not asking you to put on a hair shirt. I'm not asking you to like whip yourself or anything crazy like that. And I don't think that just because something is hard, that means that you're growing in the Lord. Like that doesn't, you know, this rule doesn't sort of reverse apply like that. But here's what I do know. And I, I can say this uh, both biblically and from 100% my own experience. That anytime that you are being actively discipled, anytime you're being sanctified by the Lord, Anytime he's making you look more like Jesus, it is going to feel costly. Right? Like you don't just sort of stumble accidentally into looking more and more like Jesus. It is a daily, hourly, even minutely like fight against the sin that is still existent inside of you. It is a constant struggle to control uh, yourself, to lead yourself, to take the intentionality to say, yes, I will read scripture every day. Yes, I will spend time in prayer, even though I want to be doing something else. That is something that feels like it costs you something. It costs you something to choose to do the right thing when the easy option just seems like so much better. So as you think about yourself and you diagnose yourself and you look at your life, ask yourself, what has been costly? And if you look back and say, nothing, I, I, nothing that Jesus has asked me to do has been costly or I haven't had to overcome any sort of challenge of controlling myself, I think you probably need to take a look 
at Scripture and try and match your life up against the way it calls you to live. Secondly, are you more true to yourself or to God? Are you more true to yourself or to God? Now, uh, living in the year 2020, our mantra is be true to yourself, right? Like that's all we want to say to each other. Hey, you got to make sure that you're true to yourself. Above all, that is what you need to do. But is that really good? Is that really right? Like, does that take into mind a biblical assessment of who yourself is, who myself is? Because on the one hand, we are made in the image of God. We are image bearers of Him. We are uh, the most like God out of all of creation. We have the capacity for so much good. But we are also fallen and broken people with the capacity and even the desires in our heart to do evil, both to ourselves, both to others, and ultimately to God. So because of that, I'm not sure that being true to yourself is necessarily the best advice. I mean, here in this situation, in this story today with Daniel, he could have just said, okay, well, I'm in this situation, I'm just going to do what feels good. Like, if I'm in captivity, at least I've got good food to eat, I'm going to enjoy this. But instead, he chose to be true to his God. We, as believers, must be true to God first. That's how we live as people of conviction. That's how we live as people who are chasing after this God, who are peculiar uh, for His sake and not for our own. The final question, and this is as it pertains to society, is the question, are you a thermostat or a thermometer? Are you a thermostat or a thermometer? A man in captivity once wrote this in a letter. He said, There is a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. And in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the, pow- the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in the power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace or outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide, uh, the killing of infants, and gladiatorial contests. But things are different now. So often, the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often, it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of the way or the sanction of things as they are. And that quote comes from Letters from a Birmingham Jail written by Martin Luther King Jr. How relevant does that sound to us today? Like and I think it's even like even more culturally relevant right now. Uh, as we are sort of seeing actions of overt and overwhelming racism still present in our lives today. How vocal is the church to stand up against that kind of thing? Do we find ourselves more as, like Dr. King says, as arch defenders of the status quo, or do we find ourselves as thermostats changing 
the culture around us, acting uh, to shape the very temperature of the world around us. And so as you take diagnosis of your life, you have to ask yourself the question, am I more a thermometer? Am I someone who is just displaying what is going on right now, trying to sort of stay in line with everyone else, trying to look like everyone else and think and act like everyone else, trying to just sort of recognize what is happening around me, or am I a thermostat? Am I someone who is so convicted by the truth of God? Am I someone who is so uh, changed by God that I am going to look different and thus cause the people around me to look different to, or at least to question the way in which they are living. Church, I'll tell you right now, that is the church I want to be a part of. That is the peculiar people I want to count myself as among. Here's what I'm challenging you to do. Take some time, ask yourself these three questions, and allow yourself to give you honest answers. Actually do the work, put in the time, put in the thought, put in the prayer. If you're anything like me, there's probably going to be things that you need to repent of, that you need to ask God for forgiveness for, but God's grace is good enough for that. And then there's going to be some things that you want to change about yourself, that through the power of the Holy Spirit and through His gift of self-control, you can do. may not be instantaneous, definitely won't be easy, but I believe in you. And more importantly, I believe in the God that is working in and through you. I love you, church. As always, I am here. If you need anything, please do not hesitate to reach out and uh, look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.